story told of a young man that just graduated from MIT with a degree in engineering. He was interviewing for his first job. Interview was going pretty well. Interviewer asked him, if you were to be offered a position, what would you expect for starting salary? The recent graduate said, $125,000 a year plus excellent benefits. Person doing interviewing said, well, how do these sound like for benefits? Five weeks vacation, 14 days of holidays per year, full employer paid health, dental, and vision, We'll match your 401k, and if you buy a hybrid or electric car, we'll give you $5,000. And the young graduate said, you've got to be kidding. Interviewer said, well, of course I am, but you started it. (laughs) That does seem extravagant, doesn't it? $125,000 a year and those kind of benefits. But the truth is there are companies that offer that and much, much more to employees when they first begin. I want to share with you a brief video on Google in Southern or in California. So please. Ever wonder what's behind this homepage? It's the Googleplex in Mountain View, California. The people who work here are called Googlers. Or if you're new, you're a Noogler, and Google's hiring a hundred of you. Here is here you can eat around the clock and all of it is free googlers and nooglers can eat breakfast lunch and dinner here at any of the company's 11 gourmet restaurants if you gain what's called the google 15 hit the gym training is free so are the massages there's volleyball swimming rock climbing game rooms and scooters and how's this for a perk google will kick in five thousand dollars toward the purchase of a hybrid car all this and every day is take your dog to work day. For us, it's less an expense item and more an investment because we truly believe that it generates value for us in the business. By value, Google means productivity. The ubiquitous internet search engine is not just Google anymore. There's Frugal, Google Earth, Blogger, and Gmail. And Google is available in 110 languages. Many of the ideas are hatched not in the cubicles, but in the lunchroom or over coffee. (laughs) 27-year-old engineer Ninian Wong is the quintessential Googler. She graduated from college at 18, was lured to Google from Microsoft, and loves her job so much she immediately rejects all other offers. What inspires them is not the... uh, ability to cash out and then relax and sail down the Nile. What inspires them is the ability to change the world. Google gets one million applications a year, one every 25 seconds, and this year hired just 5,000. Google gets the best and brightest kind of for whatever it is that we're trying to do, whether it's our world-class chefs or whether it's the people who are running our advertising sales. People are just really talented here. Not a bad starting package. Any of you work for Google? (laughs) Well, this particular video was done a few years ago. Some additional benefits have been added to Googlers. If you live in San Francisco, you get to take free transportation, not in a simple little bus, but a luxury coach that includes Wi-Fi from the moment you get in until you come home that night. Benefits are unbelievable. Even if you were to die, not only do you get your spouse or your surviving spouse and kids get traditional life insurance, 
The Googler's surviving spouse gets half that compensation for 10 years, and the kids get 1000 a month. Pretty good benefits for just starting out. Now, why would Google and so many other companies like that give such unbelievable benefits? Well, maybe it's the right thing to do because they're making a great deal of money and they're just trying to share it with their employees. Certainly a good approach. But another approach may be because of those benefits, the productivity is higher and their profitability is much, much higher. Because with all those benefits, from the time you get up in the morning and get on that coach going to Sunnyvale, I think it is, in the Silicon Valley until you come home late that night, Everything you need is provided for you by Google and other similar companies. And as a result, you spend a whole lot of time working. Most Googlers work something like 12 to 14 hours a day. Some of them six and sometimes seven days a week. They'll work at home on Sundays. Talk about increased productivity and profitability. Now, sociologists have looked at this, and they call it the mean of work devotion, the mean of work devotion, where these particular people, their entire lives are centered and focused around their job, their career, and what they do to make money. The mean of work devotion. Now, it's good to have devotion for work, right? But shouldn't there be a bit of a balance? These 14-hour days, how long do Googlers stay? They stay a long time, actually. They don't have much of a turnover. But are they living the full life? And we think about the mean of of work devotion. It's kind of used in a negative way from a sociological standpoint. What if we put another word in there? How about the mean of parenting devotion? Now, as parents, we all should be devoted to our kids, our grandkids. But is it possible that we could be overly devoted? We're almost smothering them to death? Possible. How about the mean of golf devotion? Anyone here have that? Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. But there are some people I've heard of who, when they're not working, they're golfing or thinking about golfing. How about one that hits closer to home for me, the mean of skiing devotion? Used to ski about 70 times a year when we lived at Lake Tahoe. I skied once this year, the day before my knee replacement surgery. So at least I skied this year. Now, can we have too much devotion to the fun things in life? Probably we can. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at another devotion as we look at our reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. But before we look at that, I want to give you a little bit of the background on the passage that we're going to read. Just some, something that took place a little earlier in the passages. Many of us know the story of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and Jesus. Lazarus was sick, and word came to Jesus. He was out of town that his dear friend Lazarus was sick, and Jesus delayed, delayed so long that Lazarus had died, was placed in the tomb, and Jesus arrives. He'd been in the tomb three days, and Mary and Martha come up to Jesus, both of them in tears, just asking Jesus to do something, but Lazarus had been in the tomb three days. One of the sisters says he probably stinks. But Jesus says, arise, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out of that tomb very, very much alive. Now, the Jewish leadership got wind of this. Jesus had been healing people. He had been feeding the thousands. He had been casting out demons, been preaching to thousands of people. But all of a sudden, he has raised someone who had been in the tomb for three days. And the leadership's a little concerned. And so they begin to conspire that Jesus needs to be killed. Sooner rather than later. 
Now, no doubt Jesus got wind of that. And now we're into our passage today. Our passage today, again, comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. You'll find it on the screen in a moment, as well as starting on page 1670 in our Pew Bibles. I do encourage you to follow along silently as I read aloud. Listen to the words recorded by John and hear God's message to each and every one of us about where our devotion really should be placed. Six days after the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why isn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she save it, this perfume, for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Please join with me in prayer. Uh, Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the privilege we have of being here this day, worshiping you, giving you glory and honor. And Lord God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray your Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might hear that message you have for us this day. And Lord, we might apply it in our lives each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of us know this particular passage. It takes takes place six days before the Passover. Now, if we think about our church cycle, that means it takes place the day before Palm Sunday. The day before Palm Sunday. Now, Jesus is in Bethany, which is about three miles out of Jerusalem. This is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he would often spend his time when he was in Jerusalem at their home. He would spend the evening there and spend the night and go into Jerusalem and come back. Not at all unusual. And it seems that that's what he's doing at this time. And a banquet's thrown in his honor. Most likely, it's Mary Martha thanking Jesus for saving their brother Lazarus. And it's near the end of the meal. No doubt Martha's cleaning the dishes and doing what Martha usually does. And Mary, doing what Mary normally does, is at Jesus' feet. But this time, Mary's doing something different, something that probably a Mary would not normally do. She takes pure nard, a very expensive perfume that's used among the living as a fragrance, but also used in the preparation for the burial of the dead. And she takes this pure nard and pours it on Jesus' feet and in a sense is washing Jesus' feet. Now, most of us know that when a guest comes into a home, their feet would be washed by probably the lowest of low servants in that household. If you think about it, feet that are only covered with sandals and going down roads that uh, don't have sanitary sewer systems, that's not necessarily a job that everyone would like to do, wash the feet of the guests. And here is Mary washing Jesus' feet with pure nard, a very humbling humbling experience, a demonstration of devotion to Jesus. But then Mary does one more thing. Mary lets her hair down and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, 
in a sense, drying his feet with her hair. No self-respecting woman would ever let her hair down in public. It just wasn't done. It was the not-so-self-respecting women whose hair was down. And so Mary does two things that are very humbling. Washes Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. Well, it's a good place to stop, but that's not where our passage stopped. Jesus Iscariot goes, hey, time out, Jesus. Time out. That nard could have been used to help feed the poor. It's worth a year's wages. And, and Jesus quickly says, Judas, that's not the issue. What Mary is doing is what is right. She had this nard for my burial. She's using it now while I'm still living. But she is doing what is right. Now, that's not at all Unusual for what we've seen with Jesus and Mary. Remember in Luke, Jesus is again at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Martha is the consummate hostess. She certainly has that gift of hospitality, the gift of giving, the gift of helps. And so she's scurrying about making sure the meal is perfect and everything's absolutely perfect. And Jesus is teaching and Mary once again is at Jesus' feet. And this time, it's Martha that goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus... Make my sister help me. I'm doing all the work. And she's just being a lazy bones. And what's Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better. It wasn't that Mary chose the best. And what Martha was doing was awful. But at that moment, Mary chose the better. So once again, Mary is affirmed through a devotion of Jesus. That willingness to sit at his feet and simply listen. Simply listen. Now, in both those cases, we're seeing that having the norm of Jesus' devotion should be our norm as well. That if we really love our Lord, that should be our primary focus. Our primary focus. That we put Jesus first in all aspects of our lives. But I want to share with you a couple of cautions and a reminder if we take that approach exclusively, because we might make a a mistake or two. Sometimes people say the norm of Jesus' devotion is the norm of church devotion. Church becomes number one in our lives. Now, I'm not at all suggesting all of our volunteers should stop doing what they're doing, but I think there are times we may just volunteer so much, we may be so involved that church takes the place of Jesus. Takes the place of Jesus. And that becomes a mistake. That becomes a mistake. And another thing that we could do is take the aspect of doing things takes the place of Jesus. We're devoted to what we do for the Lord. So we read scripture every day. We pray every day. We have moments of silence. We're involved in Bible studies. And the doing becomes so much about who we are that that takes the place of devotion simply in Jesus. In Jesus. And this is a reminder. Will Willimans, a Methodist bishop, and he wrote at one point that oftentimes when we are living our lives for our Lord, we sometimes forget that God shows up in interruptions. God shows up in interruptions. We're doing our business and all of a sudden it's like, what? And he's in the midst of that interruption. 
And are we devoted enough to Jesus to change what our plans are to do what Jesus has asked us to do? Now, as staff around this church, and I'm sure every church, a lot of what we do is pure, unadulterated administration. Administration. Now, y'all used to be Presbyterians, right? So the only way you know that you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit is if you have the gift of administration. Okay. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Now we're covenant. But administration is what we spend a lot of time doing, whether we're preparing sermons, whether we are paying bills, whether we're making sure the van doesn't leak, whatever it may be, we're administrating. And you know what I love? God sometimes comes in and interrupts us. We're busy administrating, and somebody comes in and needs ministry. And it's like, no, I'm trying to get this done. No, that becomes the true ministry. Every single interruption is the time that we really are doing ministry. The rest of it will get done. The administration will get done, but we have to be willing and ready for God to interrupt us and to change what we had planned. The norm of Jesus' devotion, how do we know if we have a sense of that in our lives? I want to share with you six points. This comes from the late Gerald G. May. He was an American theologian and psychiatrist. And he talks about how do we look at what we're doing? What criteria do we evaluate our lives and our devotion? And the first one, and I'm actually going to use his words, it's the devotion of conscience. One is wide awake and aware of everything that is happening at the time of surrender. There is no dullness, no robotic mindlessness. We're making a conscious choice to be in devotion. Devotion is intentional. It's a result of the free, unencumbered use of one's will. It is a free choice. It may be called forth from one's heart, but is never forced or compelled in any way. Devotion is a responsible act. One is willing to accept responsibility for the act if it turns out to be a mistake, if, in fact, the surrender was misplaced. Devotion involves responsibility for the consequences as well as the act itself. If the surrender at any time or in any way results in destructiveness, one is willing to accept responsibility for this. There can be no blaming any other person, cause, force, or entity. Number five, and probably one of the most important things, devotion is not directed toward any fully known object. Thus, it cannot in any way be a means of furthering one's self-definition or self-importance. It must be directed toward the true Godhead, existing beyond all image and conception. Thereby, it becomes the giving of one's own mysterious soul to the ultimate mystery that created it, energized it, and sustained it, and calls it forth. And finally, devotion represents a willingness to gauge in the fullness of life with the fullness of oneself. And May says it cannot be an escape or an avoidance. It must be a yes rather than a no. If we are looking at trying to find true devotion in Jesus Christ, these six criteria may help us. And as we are preparing to come into Holy Week, starting next week with Palm Sunday and the rest of the week as we go forth, it is an excellent time for each of us just to reflect on where is Jesus in all of our lives? Is he truly the one we are truly devoted to? Or is it just 
part of our whole life, not the center of our lives. Amen. We are